Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Women continue to suffer greater economic losses compared to men during the pandemic. The CMHA wants you to vote for the party that you think will help mental health services the most. Concerning news when it comes to tackling your debt. Gas prices may be sky high, but people are not turning to transit. Four teams remain in the hunt for the Stanley Cup. And when your parents die, what are you going to do with all their stuff? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. This is hard to believe. Two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, a new report is out that shows women have suffered greater economic losses compared to men. The author of the report is a senior researcher with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and she joins us now. Her name is Catherine Scotts. Catherine, good morning. How are you today? I'm well, Rick. Thanks for having me. Uh, as I said, this is kind of hard to fathom, but when you dig down deep, uh, the the realization is that, uh, you know, women have suffered disproportionate economic losses compared with men during the pandemic because many of these women are in, can we say, vulnerable um, careers? Is that accurate? What did you find in this report? Uh, yeah, no, that's exactly right. We all had that experienced a sharp shock in uh, March 2020, but some of us have had a much bumpier ride than others these last two years. We um, had occasion to dig down and look at uh, labor market information, and certain groups of women have um, experienced significant economic losses or and have been really on an economic roller coaster these past two years. And those are in particularly women in particular industries that were obviously um, vulnerable to the pandemic and the pub- mandated public closures that were occasioned, you know, in food and accommodation, folks that small business owners in personal services like hair, lo- hair salons, nail, um, you know, nail or aesthetics, um, those types of industries. So, you know, you'd have some, they'd be sharp uh, drop of unemployment, come, you know, somewhat back, another variant hit. So really an economic roller coaster for the last two years. Add children and childcare issues into the mix, and it was a recipe for disaster over the last couple of years. Yeah, no, really. In, and in particular, single moms were caught in a perfect storm, right? They, you had this economic turmoil, high levels of employment in low-wage empl- um, areas of the economy, and, you know, uh, schools closing. So, you know, what to do. So what we found, of course, even back in the study goes to December 2021, a few months ago, that, you know, there were still, like, with single moms with young kids, they were still 36, their levels of employment were 36 percentage points below where they were in February 2020. So a group that was really hard hit. It's, and in particular, Rick, we really found it's low-wage workers, right? You know, the folks, you know, women from racialized communities or women with disabilities and the like who are most likely to experience these losses. There was another group of women, of course, that didn't really, um, um, you know, didn't skip a beat, you know, really did not have a significant interruption. So it's really been a two-track recovery we've seen. Added to the mix is the fact that women on average get paid a lot less than men. How did that impact things? Well, you know, it shaped up. It was kind of, uh, you know, initially what happened, and this is kind of um, counterintuitive, but when uh, the initial employment losses were so great in low-wage workers, all these pe- folks left the, labor, um, left the job market, you know, obviously pushed out of the job market, earnings actually went up because, of course, you've lopped off the <laughs> all the folks in the low end. So pe- lower, um, what we've seen, though, over the last two years is the, um, you know, as folks found their way back into the job market, the, you know, that gap has closed somewhat. But by and large, 
you know, the thing that certainly troubling, and as we look at how what, you know, our current context where we're seeing rising costs of living, um, women's earnings actually lag significantly. And in particular areas, like, for instance, we looked at women employed in care economy, you know, those who've seen us through this, you know, these last two years, um, personal support workers, community support workers, those sorts of folks, they've actually experienced real wage losses. So, you know, we're, we arrive at this point, bumpy two years, and some women certainly are still struggling as we deal with the current challenges at the current moment. We're chatting about a new report that shows women have suffered greater economic losses compared to men during the two years of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're in discussion with the author of that report, Catherine Scott, senior researcher with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel here? Well, I think it's really important to sort of look back and take stock and to see how the pandemic has impacted the is impacting the labor market. That's part of this study that I'm doing right now, and we hope to do a deep dive on particular groups. You know, whether you know immigrant workers or um, folks, uh, hotel cleaners and the like. We're going to do a number of um, really um, specific case studies. So, yeah, really take stock and understand the changing dynamics. I think there is, you know, we're in a moment where we could start to see, for instance, wages rising as a result. So, you know, pressures, huge high rates of vacancies in many occupations. You might have noted that on your show right now. Certainly we're seeing in the stores or in in restaurants and the like. Uh, So I guess at this juncture, I think we'll wait to see, but uh, hopefully we'll start to see some, you know, appreciable wage gains. It's really important, obviously, to um, reinforce, you know, the economic security of low-income households and take the opportunity, I hope, Rick, to sort of look back and say, what could we have done better? I mean, that's what it's all about. How do we strengthen the social safety net? How do we pandemic-proof the economy so, you know, the next time around, and it probably will be very well the next time around, we're much better prepared to take care of the most disadvantaged. Two years into the pandemic, there's been a lot of talk, at least over the last year, on, you know, the next time this happens, we have to do, you know, things differently from a healthcare perspective, Mm -hmm. uh, from an employment perspective, and, uh, you know, uh, generating opportunities in this economy for everyone. What are some of the things we should be doing now to get ready for the next Next pandemic or global crisis? Well, certainly there's the work that needs to be done on the public health side and strengthening public health infrastructure. You know, that's one critical piece because I don't. I think we've certainly learned that there's no division between health and the economy. That's a false divide. You know, the two are intricately connected. We have to pay attention and strengthen the employment um, supports or protections that are in place. You know, paid sick days were a huge issue. We've not tackled that, certainly in this province. I'm in Ontario as well. Um, that's a huge gap. And a huge failing workers that were forced to make the decision about between, you know, no paycheck and going to work sick. And, of course, that really fueled, you know, recurrent um, outbreaks of the pandemic and its impact, particularly in marginalized communities. I think we need to look at, um, as I said, income supports. Right now, the federal government is in the process of studying the EI system. You know, it's not 40, you know decades in the making new reforms there, the EI system was not able to deal with the load. You had to bring in programs like CERB. So there's some really critical pieces that need to be strengthened right now, and we've got to push forward with, you know, thing, you know, change. It's imperative. Absolutely. It's a great report. And Catherine, we really appreciate you sharing uh, some of your insights into this report and uh, chatting with our listeners this morning.
Thanks so much, Rick. Appreciated it. That is Catherine Scott, author of this report that shows that women have suffered greater economic losses compared to men during the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find out more online. Just Google Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives report and lots of details that you can uncover as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Canadian Mental Health Association is encouraging voters across the province to cast their ballot for the party that will most support the mental health and addiction care needs for all in this province. So for the last several weeks, CMHA has introduced an I Choose election campaign that has really focused in on all the different challenges that are having an impact on how people access care in this province. In many cases, it has not been easy. Wait lists, um, services not available, delayed, postponed, whatever the case is, because of the pandemic. It's really magnified the underlying issue of we need more people in this industry and we need more people uh, to help all these people who are having a tough time. Uh, By the way, you can go and get more information of the I Choose campaign online at www.ichoosemha.ca or follow hashtag IChooseMHA on social media. Here to talk about it is our friend from the Canadian Mental Health Association Hamilton branch. The CEO, Sue Phipps, joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Sue, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me again. Nice to be here. Yeah, great to have you back. I was on the website um, earlier this morning, and (laughs) the first thing I saw... Uh, was the statistic, in which is in bold font, nearly 80% of Ontarians feel we're on track for a serious mental health crisis when the pandemic is over. Um, it's it, it feels like we're already there. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we are. We are. I would say that, you know, there was probably a mental health crisis before the pandemic, and so now it's just increased. So, you know, it's really in the forefront of our minds, for sure. Yeah, we've heard all four main political parties promise different things when it comes to health care and certainly mental health. What's the most important thing that whichever party forms the government, what's the most important thing they can do to improve mental health services in Ontario? Oh, Rick, there's there's so many things that they can do. But I think, you know, we're hearing a lot about um, parties making a commitment to invest in mental health and addictions care and to improve the quality of care and so forth. And I think what we really need to ask our parties to do is, you know, to think about the retaining and recruitment of mental health and addictions workers who are at this point second only to nurses for reporting burnout during the pandemic. So really it's about, you know, we, you know, it'd be great to have, you know, more investment into the access to care, to increase access, to reduce wait times, to improve the quality of care. But if we don't have the workforce to deliver the services, we're going to be in a real pickle. You know, we really need to be able to attract and retrain, retain a strong, um, strong, vibrant, uh, healthy workforce to do this work. And those are two different things. Recruiting new talent is one thing because you're educating this new crop of employees. Retaining those that you already have is a different kind of uh, initiative or game plan. Can you speak to those two, uh, those two things? Yeah, I mean, I think that what we're seeing probably across the healthcare system is a bit of a, a knowledge drain, right? So people have been doing this work. They're they're extremely knowledgeable. 
they've been working hard for, you know, decades and they're leaving the profession because they're just burned out and they're tired and they feel, you know, undervalued because they're just not getting paid enough in the mental health and addiction sector. It is, you know, one of the lower paying uh, healthcare positions to work in mental health and addiction. So I think there is that, that we need to increase our base funding. We're asking for an 8% increase because some of our organizations haven't been you know, haven't received additional increases for salaries and so forth for five to 10 years, which is just unacceptable. So that's the retainment part is really just honoring that talent and, and keeping our, our great workers who are so knowledgeable and skilled uh, within the workforce. And then, of course, to have them there to be able to uh, transfer that knowledge and help to train and the new workers that are coming into the profession and and attracting them by providing you know workplaces that are that are healthy that have perks and you know that are you know certainly rewarding them for their work and and just making that work feel attractive to them because once you're in it it is such a you know it, it really um, feeds your soul, if you will. You know, it's work that makes you feel good, and it is a wonderful thing to do. And I mean, I've worked in the profession for, well, you know, probably close to 20 years. I won't date myself. Um, And I can tell you that it's such a rewarding experience. And also, I can tell you that, you know, as a nurse, I could have found higher paying work elsewhere. and, And I didn't do that because, you know, I'm passionate about this work. But I do think we have to think about both of those things, about attracting and retaining. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Sue Phipps, CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association Hamilton branch. They've launched the I Choose election campaign over the last number of weeks and are encouraging voters to cast their ballot for the party that will most support the mental health and addiction care needs for all in this province. Is the CMHA throwing their support behind any political party? No, we're not doing that, but you can go to, as you mentioned, the iChooseMHA.ca um, website, which is our campaign, the pre-election campaign, and we do have um, access to, you know, a nice chart that outlines all the different political parties and what they are saying about prioritizing mental health and addictions care, and we commend them all for doing that, for making it a priority, and we just ask also that they consider the front lines and just you know, the workforce that we need to deliver those services as well. Great stuff. Sue, thanks for joining us today. And uh, I guess we'll wait until tomorrow to find out which party is elected and uh, we'll go from there. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, Rick, for having me again. Sue Phipps, CEO, Canadian Mental Health Association, Hamilton Branch. Yes, get out and vote tomorrow. And uh, whether healthcare is one of your top priorities or something else, make sure you cast your ballot. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As we know, the cost of living is sky high these days. It's one of the main issues in this provincial election campaign, whether it's paying for gas or groceries, whatever the case is, we're dishing out more dollars for everything. And as the cost of living continues to go up, up and up, there's a new poll out that shows a third of Ontarians don't know how to get out of debt or even where to turn to for relief. That is concerning. John Athanasiu is a licensed insolvency trustee and senior vice president at MMP Limited and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. John, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. As I said, there's some troubling findings in this poll. About 30% don't know where to turn to. That sticks out for me. What what uh, grabbed your attention in this poll? 
exactly what you just said. Plus, um, about half of the people surveyed said they don't they have difficulty trusting professional companies to help them get out of debt. So that's a little surprising as well. So I guess there's always some sort of a stigma attached to kind of having financial issues, and uh, it's it's tough to to see this. Like the people who may be having trouble, number one, don't know where to go, and number two, are having trouble trusting the people that they have to go to. Yeah, that's pretty troubling. Let's let's split these two uh, numbers uh, in half and talk about each one. 32%, according to this poll, say they don't know how to get out of debt or where to turn to for relief. Does this speak to the lack of financial literacy that most people have or don't have? I'd say for sure that's part of it. Like, uh, this never taught in school. Like, we come out of uh, high school or whatever the case may be and it's very simple to get a credit card when you're a student but it's very difficult to understand how to use it and it's troubling because like now that we're living in like a cashless society your purchasing power is, is doubled or tripled now like it used to be where if you had a hundred dollars you'd go to the grocery store and spend a hundred dollars now you don't need that hundred dollars anymore you, you just need this piece of plastic and it's no longer a hundred dollars that you have it's a five hundred dollar limit that you have that you can spend so it's a very difficult thing to navigate, and, and part of it is the fact that we're not educated enough to understand how credit works, even though it's such an everyday part of our lives. The number that you also pointed to, 51% of poll respondents say they have difficulty trusting professional companies to help them get out of debt. Where does that mistrust come from? I think part of it is just because you're dealing with something so personal when it comes to dealing with your finances, and it's tough to you know, go to someone, an independent party, and, you know, lay it out all, all on the line and, and see how they can help. Uh, the other part of it might be the fact that we're living, like, the age of the Internet. There's so many different things to be wary of when you're surfing on the computer now, and, and this pandemic didn't help, right? So we're living in, like, a, a touchless society now. So, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not the same game anymore. It's not like you have somebody who's been in the same location for 20 or 30 years and you can just walk in and you know that they're established. People are, you know, they have free time, they go on their computers, they're surfing the internet and they're bombarded with different offers and different quote-unquote solutions and, and they don't really know whether they can trust them or not. We're talking about your debts here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML with John Athanasiu, licensed insolvency trustee and senior vice president at MMP Limited. As a new poll shows, a third of Ontarians don't know how to get out of debt or where to turn to for relief. 28% say they have paid for ineffective financial advice, which to me is like a double whammy because while you're getting bad advice, uh, interest rates are not going down, they're going up, and you're paying more and more and more for the debt that you're carrying. Uh, talk about getting bad financial advice and how worrisome that is. Yeah, for sure. Like so, And that's part of the, the whole education. So licensed insolvency trustees are regulated by the, the government, right? So the, the Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy is actually a government-funded uh, division of the uh, part of the government that's basically set up for such a purpose of like dealing with individuals who are having financial difficulties so part of the education is understanding like who's you know licensed and regulated versus who may be a bit of a risk like there there are lots of independent debt consultants and a lot of them do a really good job but it's just a matter of doing your homework and checking the sources and maybe doing a little bit of history check making sure that who you're dealing with is reputable and has a, and is can be trusted and licensed trustees are 
probably a good place to start. And if we can't help you, then what we do is we refer you out to someone that we know is able to help. John, really appreciate your time. Thanks for adding some color to this poll and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Rick. That's John Athanasiu, licensed insolvency trustee and senior VP at MMP Limited. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Gas prices, yeah, they're just a fact of life, aren't they? As they continue to be insanely high, there is some very interesting news about gas prices. Not, not the gas prices themselves, but the impact. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, you'd think more and more people would be looking at alternative options to get to and from work or wherever they're going, including transit. But transit ridership across this country still down compared to pre-pandemic levels. All the while, gas prices are about $2 a litre in this neck of the woods. Dan McTagg is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dan, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me this morning there, Rick. What, what is your reaction to this transit ridership not really reaching even pre-pandemic levels, considering gas is through the roof? I think it still has uh, some lingering effect uh, from, you know, uh, lockdowns, mask mandates, uh, and still, you know, two years of aversion. We don't want to be next to somebody or near somebody. Uh, and, you know, of course, uh, you can't blame people. Uh, you know, even our federal government says uh, you still have to have these mandates in place, at least until June 30th at our airports, um, even though Europe and other regions of the world are quickly moving away from that. So there may be that sort of echo or that lingering effect, even though uh, it's still very much with us and very, very present. The other factor, I think, is, uh, you know, uh, I live in Oakville, um, you know, Halton, uh, the transport system here was uh, was on strike for uh, a good part of a month. So some people have probably thought of different uh, modes of getting uh, to and from work. And, of course, the other thing is the convenience. Um, even at $2 a litre, uh, people, you know, may be working places that aren't necessarily accessible or readily accessible in the same way that a vehicle has, whether you're driving an electric vehicle or whether you're driving a, uh, an internal combustion engine. And the convenience part of it really speaks, I think, to most people listening in their cars right now because, hey, they can just hop in their vehicle, uh, you know, they're in work or they're at work, uh, you know, sooner than it would take a, a bus or even a train to get them there. Uh, you know, there's no traffic with the train, but it does take a while and you're stopping here, there and everywhere. Um, do we also get used to gas prices once, you know, once the initial shock of, oh my gosh, it's $2 a liter kind of wears off, even though it's still shocking to see that price tag. Once that initial shock wears off, do we just come accustomed to paying this new level for gas? Oh, I think we, uh, we don't really have much of a choice. Um, and other factors, other things that we purchase get sacrificed. Um, although you wouldn't tell right now because, of course, there is scarcity of supply of everything. Uh, we're entering a very interesting period in which, uh, you know, uh, the uh, the global economy is, is reeling from, you know, uh, from years of lockdowns and uh, the inability to address this large demand. But to the point of, you know, whether or not we, uh, we are accustomed to this, I think for most it's... Uh, we don't have much of a choice, and the choices that we have are far less than what we need. So, again, you know, if I'm going to work or have to get somewhere, I can't uh, necessarily have a bus system, a transit system that's going to uh, replicate, you know, uh, my uh, my need to get there as opposed to, and you know, for instance, my work 
so that I can pay these bills. So other things are going to be sacrificed. Other things are going to be put to the wayside. I, I know that travel this week, for instance, a lot of people will not go to hotels, will not stop along the way to grab their, you know, whatever it is that they eat along their way to their travel. They'll simply save the money and uh, focus on uh, on what uh, what is an important, vital part of our, you know, of our way of living, and that's uh, fueling the vehicles. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. I'll ask you this question. You know, cities run their own public transit uh, operations. For instance, in Hamilton, the HSR has been around for decades. They have to pay for to, to fuel these vehicles. How are gas prices impacting city budgets when it comes to fueling pu- public transit systems? Uh, it's an excellent question uh, on because what we're looking at here, Rick, is uh, many of those uh, companies that are large users of uh, fuel have hedged, and that hedging will come to an end. In other words, what they've done is they said we've bought diesel at a uh, dollar fifty-five for the next six months. After that hedging is over, the next uh, round of negotiations will push them up into the two fifteen to twenty range. That means, of course, inevitably municipalities will have to throw in the towel and uh, and ask of of citizens, of residents, of uh, ratepayers, uh, a little bit more money uh, on their taxes. So, look, uh, the rise, the rapid rise uh, of 30, 40, 50 percent in fuel costs will affect the cost of everything. This is why I find it ironic that when they hear politicians and others talking about affordability, they skillfully avoid energy affordability because they know full well that policies that have led to unaffordability, things like blocking pipelines, uh, you know, mandates that they divest from oil and gas are all very much a, a, a major factor in driving up those prices that we all share and, and pay for. So it's a decision I think Canadians have to make. There's no, there's not a painless transition, if that's what we want to call it. I just think most people thought, well, let's sign up to this. It's trendy. It's cool. It's great. And the world's coming to an end in 10 years. Of course, I'm kidding. Um, but, uh, you know, are you aware of the cost? And are you prepared to pay that cost? I think a lot of Canadians are getting sticker shock and uh, perhaps uh, buyer's remorse. Last question for you. Only got uh, actually less than a minute now. And I know motorists uh, listening to this right now are thinking, all right, well, what about gas prices? What should we expect over the next uh, week or so? Uh, a penny up tomorrow. So two or three possibly increases over the next couple of weeks. I think it's going to be quiet, relatively speaking, mostly because markets are uh, are in a bit of a, are confused. Even though Europe is now sanctioning oil, no one's got extra oil or gas sitting around. Canada could, but didn't bother, you know, stepping up to the plate and decided it was cool to break uh, or to stop building pipelines. I'm not sure how this is going to end, but uh, expect that uh, an average increase of about 10 cents at least this summer is what we're going to see more often. And the price isn't going down anytime soon, folks. That should not be a surprise. Dan, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks, Rick. That's Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Colorado outslugged Edmonton 8-6 in Game 1 of the NHL's Western Conference Final last night. Tonight, Tampa Bay will visit the New York Rangers in the opening game of the East Final. So which two teams are destined to meet in the Stanley Cup final. Stephen Ellis is a web editor with the Hockey News and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Stephen, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Uh, Avalanche 8, Oilers 6. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, not if you're a goalie. Uh, of course, all four goalies getting put into that game, and when you're looking at that, and 
uh, Colorado just like it's hard to say that one team played significantly better, but Colorado they just made Edmonton chase and uh, they did pretty well. Chasing just was enough in the end. So uh, kind of a wild game, kind of similar to what we saw in Game One of of the uh, the Battle of Alberta. But uh, yeah, I don't even know how to explain that game. Uh, crazy nuts. Uh, I don't think we're going to see another game like that. But uh, it's for Edmonton. Wow, that's just not the way you want to start. Uh, you mentioned the goalies. Oilers starting netminder Mike Smith got the hook after allowing six goals on, I think it was 25, 26 shots. Darcy Kemper left the game with an injury. How much more pressure is going to be on those two goalies or whoever starts in game two and beyond? Oh, for sure. Uh, I, it's kind of like when you get like a blowout in a regular season game, you kind of just write that game off. It doesn't really matter. It's like, okay, you lost by a big uh, chunk. That doesn't typically happen a lot. But in the playoffs, obviously, it's a bit different. You don't know how many games you can lose. Um, to be fair to the goalies, the defense wasn't fantastic in that game. There were a lot of high-danger uh, scoring chances. But then you look at Mike Smith, and yeah, he definitely let a lot of terrible goals. Uh, we know that Mike Smith can back, uh, to bounce back from these games. He played really good in Game 2 and Game 3, specifically in the last series after that really bad Game 1. Uh, and you look at Darcy Kemper, who that was definitely his worst in the playoffs. Uh, he can't have a game like that, but he's also been a not a super busy series or playoffs for him. He only had one game before this where he had to face 420 shots. Uh, and that means he hasn't been that busy. So I think that they'll both be able to do it. We know they're both decent goalies that can do it. It's just obviously game one. That's a tough way to start. Got about a minute to go. Who wins this series? Who wins in the East final? And uh, who's going to beat in the Stanley Cup here? Uh, I do think Colorado's going to win this. I think it's going to be about six games. And I do think Tampa Bay... But just the way Vasilevsky's been playing, I think they will have the edge over the New York Rangers, and they'll win that one too. And I'll be uh, those two going up for the finals. And I, I do think it's going to be the Tampa Bay Lightning. Wow! Avalanche and uh, Lightning would be a fantastic final. Looking forward to it if that happens, or whichever teams face off each other in the final should be a lot of fun. Stephen, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Talking about the transfer of junk. Over the next 10 years, Canadians alone will stand to inherit an estimated $1 trillion. It's the largest transfer of wealth in the history of humanity. It's just Canada. One trillion dollars over the next 10 years is going to go from one generation to the next. And in that time, we are also going to see the greatest transfer of stuff, of junk, really, from one generation to the next. Think about all the stuff that your parents have or that maybe your parents had and now you have. If you're in this boat, if you've already gone through this, I want to hear from you as well. What did you do with all the stuff? And if you're thinking about this, thinking, man, my parents do have a lot of stuff, whether it's in their basement or just throughout the house, those tchotchkes, those knickknacks, all that stuff in the garage, in the shed. What am I going to do with all that? Is it going to go in storage? Are you going to have a massive garage sale, donate it to charitable organizations? What's your plan? And again, if you've already gone through this, I really want to hear from you. What was some of the difficulties you faced? I would think that the hardest part is going through those cherished items, whether it's pictures or just little things that trigger memories. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. What are you going to do with your parents' stuff when they die? And if you're of a certain age, 
And listen, for all of us, the clock is ticking. But if you're of a certain age, you know, the, the, the clock is closer to midnight. I don't mean to be crass. But what do you want your kids to do with your prized possessions? Say you have, I don't know, a stamp collection. Or you're a collector of baseball cards. Whatever the case is, what do you want your kids to do with it? Do you have a plan in place? Have you talked to them about it? You can send me an email, rick at 900chml.com. Go on to Twitter, at am900chml, at Rick Samprin. What is your plan for all this stuff? Because we know that parents of baby boomers, so it'd be like my grandparents, they were savers, right? They, they learned the lessons of uh, not one but two world wars, the Great Depression. They saved a lot of stuff because they held value in that stuff. Their children, so the boomers, I mean, they were the great consumers, and, well, even to this day, we, we just buy a lot of stuff. So much so that junk companies have gotten really busy, including one company called Storage Vault. It went from owning 10 locations in 2014 to 197 just a couple of years ago. And the Association of Professional Organizers in Canada, which started in 1999 with 30 people, now has 600 members ready to help you deal with your stuff or junk from your parents or grandparents, whatever they have willed to you or just left in their home. But here's some tips for tackling the stuff that you are going to one day receive. Uh, let's say both your parents have passed away. They have a home. You got to sell the home, but there's also a lot of stuff in this home. The advice from experts is tackle one room at a time and start with items that hold no sentimental value, like an appliance. Number two, look carefully for hidden gems in places like pockets, books, and boxes, even under carpets and in air vents, which could have been a special hiding place for your mom or dad. Cherish the memories is another tip, but don't get attached to items you don't really need. In fact, you can take photos of special items that you can't or don't want to keep and create a photo album, whether it's a physical one or one that lives in a digital space. And lastly, start getting your own house in order. I know, easier said than done, to make it easier on your kids when you pass away. Just some tips on the great transfer of junk that we're all going to one day go through. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.